Welcome to The Grange Point, where we hang out and talk about the latest news in science technology and how they relate to your everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Young Scientists of Australia. We're a youth organisation aged 15 to 25 whose work is to promote science to the youth of Australia. What makes a drink tasty? What can you do to make a drink taste better or different? Does the juicing process enhance all those fruit and vegetable smoothies that you might be having? Is there a better type of juicing technique to use? Plus, we dive into the world of umami, how we can measure and assess it, and what it can do to enhance drink as well as food. I want you to imagine for a second that this podcast wasn't about science. and Just bear with me, we'll get back to the science in a moment. But instead was about art and describing visual art specifically, what paintings look like, how they are made, and how striking and beautiful certain artworks are. Now, that would be a very different podcast to be sure, but is audio really the right medium to transfer information about art? Well, maybe you'd make an argument that, well, if you can't get to an art gallery or you can look at a picture online, the podcast is a good supplement. And in that way, even though this audio mechanism wouldn't be the best way to describe art, it sort of meets the purpose. It helps you learn a little bit more about it. And maybe if you see the actual artwork in person or in a visual form, you'll understand it a bit better. Now, that's what happens when you try to use one medium to describe a very different one, one that uses very different senses. Another example of this is a bit more scientific, and we're going to get into that now. That's how you can describe taste. Because if you've watched any reality cooking shows, you'll know that those judges are there trying to describe to you, the viewer at home, how delicious this food tastes, or maybe how bad. What exactly the flavor profile tastes like. It Sometimes it's not even on TV shows. Sometimes it's when you read a recipe or read a book that describes what sumptuous feast that people are eating. Now, in manga and anime, they have lots of shows dedicated to exactly this, trying to describe what food is like with visual representations of you know being in a field or making a strange face. All of these things are a way to try and describe what a certain flavor profile tastes like. But when it comes down to it, nothing beats the real thing. And that's where scientists try to understand exactly what defines taste and how your body processes those signals. Because you have taste receptors in your body. One big area, of course, is in your tongue and your palate, the taste buds. And they can measure different things. They can measure sweetness, bitterness, sourness, saltiness. But there's also some other taste receptors that you might not be aware of. You can detect carbonation. An enzyme that's connected to the sour receptor actually helps you transmit information and understand when you have carbonation, like carbonated water. It's also possible researchers are identifying a particular receptor for detecting fat, CD36, that's localized to a certain region which is present in the taste buds that help identify because it binds to long fatty acid chains. There's a couple of other ones like GPI120 and GPI40 that have been implicated to respond to oral fats. So these are examples of your taste buds detecting lots of different things. Now, of course, if you watch any cooking show, you'll see judges talking about umami. Now, what umami is, in a chemical sense, is the TS1R1 plus TS1R3 heterodimer receptor. That is basically an umami receptor. Now, umami, now whilst sweet and sour 
are pretty obvious ones, even salty. Umami is a harder flavor to quantify, but we've known about it for a long time. However, in 1908, Japanese researcher Kikuena Akeda proposed its existence, localizing and trying to find its exact location. He called it umami, which is a combination of both umai, which means delicious, and mi, which means taste in Japanese. And it's kind of the best way to describe it. It's often used to sometimes mean something like meaty, savory, broth-like. And umami is a big thing in modern gastrological circles because we actually use that flavor to help elicit certain responses. Sometimes chefs throw in umami bombs to try and make a dish stand out with a certain thing. Things like fish sauce or ketchup. They have high amounts of umami in it and you can really get pulled into that flavor. It opens up the flavor profile of a dish, much in the way that saltiness, acidity, bitterness, sourness does as well. But exactly what happens when you have umami in your tongue is pretty interesting because, well, it's not just a response of umami in food. Maybe there's umami potential in different beverages. And how would you begin to assess and understand that? That's exactly what researchers from the University of Copenhagen have been diving into. It's a great way to get to study lots of different drinks, and they published this in the journal Food Chemistry. Lead authors were Charlotte Schmidt, Carsten Olsen, and Ole Moritzen. The thing is, you often associate umami with savoury deliciousness, and not many drinks you would describe, maybe aside from soup, as being savoury. The thing is, you can find these earthy flavours with meat, with mushrooms, with broth, with vine-ripened tomatoes. Umami can enhance saltiness and sweetness, but taper and reduce bitterness, which is why it's very popular. But all of those things that I've just described are great for describing a broth, a soup, an earthy meal, a pasta sauce, a delicious piece of, say, teriyaki chicken. But, well, does it exist in drink form. And that is a bit more complicated. Because if umami can exist in beverages, how would it exist? And what does it do for the flavor profile, especially when you pair that with foods? So really, the only way to do this is to measure it in drinks, in particular fermented drinks like wine, beer, sake, or champagne. Because all of these can be paired with umami foods, but they could also be measured to assess, well, just how much umami is in them themselves. Now, how do you measure umami? Well, it's actually relatively simple. You need to first identify and measure the amount of amino acid called glutamic acid inside that drink. Now, the reason why is because you actually use that glutamate when it lands on the certain taste receptors on your tongue to actually determine and detect the umami flavor. So something that has more glutamic acid in it is likely to have more of an umami flavor. That's pretty much how it works. Now, which beverage then has a lot of this glutamic acid in it? And therefore, which one has more of that umami flavor? Now, beverage fermentation is an important part here because we know that fermented drinks would be a bit like fermented foods. And fermented foods are often pretty high in umami. It's a reason why fish sauce, ketchup, soy sauce are considered very strong in umami. Now, you don't normally drink soy sauce, but you do normally drink something like sake because the longer a beverage is fermented, the higher the glutamate content it tends to have, which means a more intense umami flavor. That's why the researchers actually picked up that sake, 
pretty much leads the pack in terms of the amount of umami because it's typically fermented both as yeast and mold culture. It's a process called koji. Now, whilst not all beverages can match sake's umami flavor, there is some pretty interesting examples of when you can get a savory deliciousness from a drink. And this can go a long way to explain why certain drinks pair well with certain foods. Okay, so we know, you know, you can combo pretty good different types of foods together, like ham and cheese. What the researchers took was another combo pairing, in this instance shellfish, like oysters or shrimp and scallops, with different beverages to see which combination would actually lead to the most umami, provoke the emergence of that umami flavor. Because again, you don't just eat food on its own, you eat food in a combination, and your tongue, your taste receptors can be activated in one way that enhances the flavor of something else. And what they got from this is that, well, if you pair some of these drinks, like sake, beer, champagne, and wines, with oyster or tuna, you actually get a really strong umami response. If you use sake and just some certain aged wines, you can actually get an even umami response from something like scallops. Champagne also does it too because of its fermentation process. Now, why would this be the case? Well, it's because these high pair these pairings have a high content glutamate drinks with foods high in ribonucleotides, RNA's building blocks. So these actually react to each other, makes a catalyst of a synergistic flavor, which enhances both the qualities of the food and the drink. Basically, you have the glutamides in the presence of the ribonucleotides. They react with each other, which actually triggers certain parts of your taste receptors in different ways. If you have a drink with glutamate and a food with just as many ribonucleotides, you actually greatly enhance the umavi flavor by around a multiple of eight. That's a pretty big boost when it comes to a flavor profile. Now, knowing how and when to enhance umami is also good for several reasons. Not only is it great if you're a high-powered chef trying to make the most complicated and tasty food, or maybe enhance the selling of your drinks, if you can understand which vegetables, together with selective beverages, provide a better taste, then you can encourage people to consume more vegetables, which is great for humans as well as our planet. But it's important that these things are kept in the context of pairings, of showing that what you eat and what you drink interact with each other. The important lesson out of this is that you can get umami flavors from drinks. Obviously, sake and beer will have a stronger response, but in general, you can get umami responses from any type of fermented drink, but it's enhanced if you pair it with certain foods. Foods that are high in ribonucleotides is just one example. You get an extra deliciousness boost or savoriness boost from that combination of food and drink. There's some great research from the University of Copenhagen, which shows ways that you can enhance your meal just by pairing the white drink with right food and really giving you that extra eight-time umami boost. spoke about what can make flavored beverages more delicious by pairing them with certain foods but a lot of people often turn to drinks as a way to consume healthier foods in a new way 
I'm talking here about things like smoothies. Vegetables and fruit can be blended in certain types of drinks, well, for several reasons. One is to have a more efficient delivery of the nutrients and vitamins from these vegetables, but also because, well, it can be more palatable for people to have a nice freshly blitzed juice rather than having to eat a whole lot of vegetables. That's true and certainly useful, but you know it might be a good way to get people to increase their vegetable and fruit content, but there's certain advantages in doing so. Because the type of juicing technique that you use to make your juice can actually influence some key components of that juice to make them be more fresh or pop in their flavor profile. Because what they do, the different juicing techniques that is, is they can influence the phytochemical content and the antioxidant activity, just even in basic common vegetable juices. Now, there's a lot of different types of juices and investigating which one of these yields different types and different flavors of juice, researchers from Texas A&M University have been pouring over literally all these different juicing techniques to try and find which ones are the most effective and what changes for the between the different blending methods. This research is published in the American Chemical Society's Food Science and Technology Journal and authors include Wang, Wang, Jayapakasha and Patil. Now there's a wide-ranging market of people hawking all kinds of different juicing machines with new innovations but fundamentally they can do different things. You can have blenders which crush vegetables with really fast spinning blades. Now, you could also have high-speed centrifugal-type juices that pulverize vegetables. Now, reason why you might try to go with different methods could be different reasons. For example, just take a simple blender with blades. Really fast spinning blades results in a juice that is thick with much more pulp and dietary fiber. That is some pretty big advantages. By contrast, if you use one of the high-speed centrifuge types, well, you really quickly pulverize the vegetables and you actually separate out pulp and fiber. It means you get a thinner, clearer juice, but you don't get the added value of all of that fiber, which from a nutritional standpoint is very useful for you. Now, low-speed juice extractors squeeze the juice with often a horizontal-style screw that rotates vegetables at a really low speed. Now, that doesn't add heat, because the other two mechanisms, lots of speed, lots of blades, that adds heat to the equation. And heat can do some interesting things. Now, low-speed juices also remove the least amount of pulp and fiber. So, like the blades, they, they leave a lot of that fiber left inside there, which is pretty good, again, from a dietary perspective. So, what happens when you use 19 different vegetables juiced with these three different techniques? because they all have advantages and different advantages. And well, vegetables themselves have different properties, specifically when you consider the phytochemical and antioxidant contents of those juices, along with what we talked about, the fiber and the clearness of those juices. Now, in general, blending produces juices with the lowest amount of some beneficial compounds, like vitamin C, antioxidants, and phenolics, because most juicing techniques add in heat. So anything that blends, cuts it up, or spins it really fast adds heat to the equation. This heat tends to cut down the vitamin C and antioxidants present in the drink. So whilst the fruit and veg might have had heaps of that to begin with, the actual process you use to make the juice starts to make them less effective. Low-speed juicing generates the highest amounts of beneficial compounds, which is great. 
Although there were some vegetables that, you know, didn't really have as much a good response. They for a number of reasons to do with the actual chemical properties of that particular vegetable. But in general, low-speed juicing doesn't add as much heat, which means you tend to get more vitamins and antioxidants out of it as the process. The problem is, you actually get thicker, high-fiber juices. And that means in that high-fiber juice, you end up with what they call amylase inhibitors, which can help reduce the hyperglycemia after a meal. Now, that's useful for specifically certain types of response, trying to cut down that hypoglycemic response in your body after having a large meal. Now, when you take these juices and you throw them in mass spectrometers to try and break out the other chemicals inside, you can see that low-speed juicing also produces more diverse type of metabolites than the other two methods, but it was really very disparate depending on the actual source vegetables you threw in. So high-speed juicing can lead to pretty interesting drinks to drink and easier drinks to drink, but sometimes you can cut down on what you actually want to get out of it, fiber, vitamins, or antioxidants. So some combination of less heat juicer, but less pulp will probably make for a more enjoyable juice. But different blenders surprisingly actually make juices that can do different things for your body. And picking the right one that's right for you and your own dietary needs is something that you have to make a decision on. But at least you can go into it knowing which type of juicer can actually have a pretty big role in the type of benefits you're getting out of that juice. So not all juice is the same, and not all vegetables or fruit respond in the same way to being juiced. But the tools that you use to make a juice can certainly have a big impact on what you get out of them from a health standpoint. It's a great research published in the journal ACS Food Science and Technology from Texas A&M University. This has been the Young Scientists of Australia's podcast, LaGrange Point. From choosing the right juicing technique to maximize vitamins and antioxidants in your drink, plus how you can pair a specific drink with your food to maximize umami response. Our ending theme was composed by Audio and Head to ysa.org.au for more information about the Young Scientists of Australia.